0: Welcome back to Rethinking Politics. This is episode 42. The most important thing happening right now, or at least one of the most talked about, is the Israel and Gaza conflict, rather the conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And of course, with Israel, as always, there's a number of other forces at play here. The history of Israel is complicated, and to get some context for these events is difficult. It's hard to know at what point you want to start the discussion. We could go back all the way to Abraham in the Bible and start there, because in some sense, that is the root of the difference in opinion. But we're not going to go that far today.
1: But needless to say, the conflict has been going on for about a week now. It'll be a little bit longer by the time you guys hear it. Or thousands of years. (laughs) It started... With some, some conflict in uh, Jerusalem, with some Palestinians who were who were getting kicked out of their homes by Israel because of a law that had been put in place in the 70s that had to do with who owned the homes originally and, and who it actually belonged to and blah, blah, blah. Like Dan said, it's very complicated and messy, but the, the legalese aside, there, there was an instigation, there was something that, that made people upset and... Hamas, who is currently the the government of Gaza and has been since 2006, started launching rockets into Israel, and Israel, of course, retaliated with airstrikes and a number of things, and so, of course, Hamas retaliated against those airstrikes by launching more rockets into Israel, and, and back and forth and back and forth to the point that now we've got over 2,000 rockets have been launched into Israel by Hamas. You've got many, many airstrikes by Israel that have killed or injured hundreds, if not thousands, of Palestinians in Gaza, including many, many civilians, and just a big, bloody mess, which is, which is what's happening right now.
0: Right, that may have only escalated by the time you hear this.
1: Yeah, if, if anything, it appears to be escalating, not de-escalating. There doesn't appear to be any slowing down in in regards to this conflict. I mean, it's interesting because this is not the first time this has happened. The last time it happened in 2014 was very similar. You know, there was there's a lot of rockets fired, there was fighting. Eventually it stopped, but it was never resolved. It was an open-ended ceasefire, you know. And it's very likely that that's how it will end today. And so but what's interesting about that, Dan is the fact that really this conflict has never stopped. Since Hamas came into power in 2006, and even earlier, ever since Gaza was created, ever since Gaza was formed as an independent Palestinian nation, Israel and Gaza have been butting heads. But especially since 2006, there's basically been outright war just around the corner on a daily basis. You know, I mean, here in the United States, we hear about what's going on, and it's hard to gain perspective on what it's actually like for the people who are living there. Israel, of course, is in a unique situation because they are surrounded by nations who are unfriendly to Israel. I mean, Gaza has launched 2,000 rockets into Israel in the past week, but Gaza launches rockets into Israel every year. That's that's a regular occurrence and right
0: it's the it's the quantity over a short period of time here
1: that has that makes it more of a conflict yeah it's not the uniqueness of the rocket launch and I and I wonder what it would be like Dan to live in a country where a rocket strike is always potentially imminent where you know where bombs blowing up the businesses that you work at or, or whatever is a normal and the, the psychological impact that that has on the Israelis has to be extreme. And then you go over to Gaza, which is a country that's had that's been blockaded for years and years and years, that's in economic poverty, that's constantly fighting with Israel and getting destroyed by Israel, which means that you have the same thing that Israel has, but in many ways much worse. Because on a regular basis, you're having you know whole neighborhoods that are getting destroyed and not having the economic resources to rebuild. Because in terms of economic resources, Gaza has very, very little, and especially compared to Israel, they have very little resources. And so there's, there's no comparison to anything that we've experienced in the United States. You know, you can talk about how traumatic it was for those who lived through World War II, which is over many generations ago, and very few people alive still remember that. And yet that isn't even as extreme as what these countries have gone through in the past twenty years you know right. there's there's no there's no example I can point to an American living American memory of an event that can capture the brutality that is the israeli palestinian conflict
0: and the the idea of that perpetual threat like that looming over your head that is crazy like that's <laughs> To live like that, to live with that expectation, fire drills are the only drills we do around here. <laughs> there, I, there was that time, I guess, when they would, the duck and cover campaign, right, when there was fear that there would be actual bombs mm-hmm. dropped mm-hmm. in places in the United States, uh, mostly unreasonable fears, as, it, as it's turned out. America has the unique good fortune of being in an area with no, no even potential enemies. Mm-hmm. Like like our worst worst case scenario, <laughs> Canada declares war on the U.S. <laughs> you no, know, but you know what I mean. Like they're they're just we don't share borders with very many people, and the people we do share borders with are not are not a threat, and not likely to ever be a threat because, in part, because of a combination of goodwill and just their their other democracies and things. That is. So far from the experience of Israel that it is it is truly at the other
1: extreme. And Israel has come under a lot of fire recently in regards to this conflict. You no know, pun intended. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. <laughs> President Biden spoke up and, and defended Israel and mentioned the fact that he didn't believe their response was an overreaction and that they had a right to self-defense. And he immediately got shot down by uh, AOC and others from the left who were quick to uh, denounce Israel and to make it very clear that there is a bad guy here and it is Israel. And that is a extreme oversimplification on their part. It's easy to paint Israel out as the bad guy.
0: It's easy because they're so much stronger.
1: Yes, I mean in this conflict part of the reason it's easy to paint Israel as the bad guy is because although Hamas has launched over 2000 rockets into Israel only a few number of those have actually killed anyone almost half of them were were destroyed by Israel's iron dome you know the the videos and photos of the iron dome defense system have gone viral over the past week because it is incredible what it's, it's accomplishing
0: spectacular yeah
1: and as well as you know hundreds of the rockets didn't even make it into Israel i think about 380 so far have landed in gaza and even hurt and killed people in Gaza without making it into Israel and and then of course there are a large number that are making it into Israel and aren't even hitting populated areas the end result of that is that even though this is this is really what we've got here is this bombing war using you know missiles rockets and anything else between Israel and Gaza but because of Israel's defense system Gaza is the one that's suffering the most, and so it's easy to to point to Gaza as the unison victim and Israeli aggression as the problem when it's not that simple. And it's not that simple either as as some pundits are trying to say that Israel is just defending itself and Israel is 100% in the right because it's not that simple. You know, Israel's treatment of Gaza in the past 20 years has not been without fault. They haven't acted blamelessly. You look at the, the blockades they've done, the restrictions they've placed on even relief items for making it into the Gaza, and that is a, that is a hard thing to try and defend.
0: Right? You, were, you pointed this out to me earlier, and I, I was surprised because obviously the Middle East is going to be significantly and noticeably poorer than the United States. That's expected. Now, almost no other nation has such wealth so common. And it's a product of productivity. It's a product of our ability to trade. It's a product of the fact that we're not constantly—I <laughs> was going to say—constantly at war with our neighbors. We have we have found ways to be at war with other people's neighbors. So maybe that's not so <laughs> much of a bad. <laughs> so maybe that's not so much of an, an exception. Uh, but the point is that even compared to Israel, which Gaza obviously is very close to, and Egypt, which it shares a border with, and other nations around it, Gaza is poor. Why?
1: Extremely poor. And the main reason is because of the blockades, is because of the restriction that is placed on Gaza. Gaza is cut off in most economic ways from the countries around it. In fact, that they rely primarily on aid from other countries to survive, basically. Fundamentally, they, they are only able to survive because of foreign aid including from those countries that surround it, as well as from European and Western countries that are actually supplying Gaza with aid. It's actually an incredibly dense country. It's one of the most dense countries in terms of population per square mile. You've got 2 million people living in this tiny, carved-out part of the already small nation of Israel. Right. Israel itself is tiny. Israel itself, when you look at it on the map, is this tiny little sliver. Then you take a tiny little sliver of that, cram 2 million people into it, and deprive them of most economic tools. You know, we've talked about free trade before versus, you know, curtail trade. Yes. You take all trade away. Especially from a a country that's not self sufficient, you know, a desert country that doesn't have a lot of fantastic <laughs> densely populated desert. Yeah, and there's not there's, there's there's not a lot you can do at that point. Maybe
0: more more reliant on trade than most, just just as a product of their circumstances. Now, I think even they could be independent in the sense that if you allowed them to trade, they could become yes. wealthy as. As others have.
1: Yeah, I meant independent in the sense that they don't have the, the physical resources they need. You know, they don't have To the produce mines. all their own goods and yeah, they can't exactly. trade with others. Yes. That's what we're talking about. And of course, Israel has had a reason to do this. And Israel's reason is very simple. In the 1940s, Germany and the Nazis exterminated over 6 million Jews. The rest of those Jews were refugees throughout Europe that had no homeland and nowhere to go. And they were basically, in many cases, forced to to leave, to go somewhere. They had very few options. And it was decided they could have Israel. And this was not really their decision. It was, you know, you had Britain first and then the UN who said, hey, here's where you can go. This is where you can live because we really don't want to deal with it. You know, we've talked about it before, but during during this time, during the rise of the Nazis, Almost all countries closed their borders to Jewish refugees, including the United States. Completely closed their borders or slowed it down to a trickle so that so that people could leave the Nazis. And This is just fact. This is just known, documented fact. And they were eventually forced to go to Israel. And when they went to Israel, they did not have their own country. It was controlled by Britain. Britain hated controlling Israel because... It just, I mean, the Middle East is a mess. And it was a mess then. If
0: you know anything about the Middle East, you don't even need an explanation for this, for why they would hate it.
1: So they gave Israel their own nation. And from day one, they said, Israel, you're going to defend yourself. You're going to be your own nation on this day. Before this day, you are not allowed to purchase heavy weapons. You are not allowed to have an army. You're not allowed to do anything. And then day one, Israel gets invaded. And they have to defend their nation. Not necessarily from extinction, but from destruction. You know, the, the, the Palestinians said, this is our land. The, these Jews should not be here. We want this land back. And so they fought for it. And the Israels had to survive just for their very nationhood. And you can argue back and forth about whether or not they should be there in the first place. But you really can't blame them for that that's not their problem you know they were just fine living in germany and poland and half a dozen other european countries so this is this is the world they've lived in for the past 80 years is one of daily survival go pull up wikipedia on the state of israel and just look at the 20th and 21st century and look at the number of wars they've had to fight just to survive look at the number of times they've been invaded since coming into existence i mean that's their whole world is is conflict is is survival that mentality is something so far away from what we have that it's hard to even get into that into that frame of mind you know what i mean
0: right one of the strange things about the United States is that we have developed a significant part, or at least a, a portion of the culture has developed very much in a martial manner. We have a, a, a pro-military culture in a way that is, is frankly quite surprising. And when you look at like the founding of the United States, and you look at how the founders viewed standing armies, and you look at how the need for self-defense Initially, we had the Revolutionary War, we have the War of 1812, we have a few things. And the Civil War comes later, that's not self-defense, that's another issue. But beyond that, we've had very few reasons, very few occasions where we were forced into war,
1: mm-hmm.
0: where we, we had to actually defend ourselves. And so if you want to explain why the US government has come to be the most powerful military in the world, and is dominant around the world, and is constantly at war, you need an explanation, right? That's weird. That's mm-hmm. not, that's, that is not what circumstances would suggest that we are pushed to. That's a product of prosperity. That's a product of corruption. That's a product of ambition. That's a product of a variety of other things that lead us to the position we're in where we can and do do that. If you say Israel has a military culture and they're going to engage in some of the same dark things that America does in their foreign policy. You don't actually need an explanation if you know anything about their history. You look at it and you go, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Are they probably abusing some of that, their military prowess and power? Yes. But Absolutely. why do they have that power? They have to. They could either die quietly. They could either be forced out and, and have to flee to some other place and lose a lot of people along the way, or they could become a force to be reckoned with. And when you do have that power, there is going to be some abuse no doubt there's that's always the case but it makes sense in Israel's position in a way that it just doesn't in some of the in countries like the United
1: States preface this because i want to make it clear where we're at because you know you have a lot of people who are condemning Israel right now because all they see is is strong Israel today you know what i mean they see strong Israel and they see weak gaza and they say this is, this is the problem is that disparity. You know, I mean, believe it or not, disparity yes. is always the problem. Yes. <laughs> yes,
0: and Israel is clearly imposing by their might things on Gaza for their benefit, not for the benefit of the people in Gaza, but for the benefit of Israel that cause people in Gaza to suffer. This blockade is causing real harm.
1: Yeah, and Israel's very upfront with that. They don't say, hey, we're benevolent here trying to help out Gaza. They they say, no, you cannot bring gasoline into Gaza. You cannot bring in metal into Gaza because we're afraid where they're gonna use that metal to build weapons, they're gonna use that gasoline to fuel vehicles to drive into Israel and attack us. You know what I mean? Like there's no ambiguity. About what that blockade is for. It's for the protection of Israel. When they're yes. launching those those strikes against Hamas in Gaza, they are not trying to scare Gaza with their strikes. All of their strikes are at military targets, or they're supposed to be. You know, they're intend intending to target military targets in any in any war, in any military launch, there's always going to be civilian casualties. Right. Which I think is absolutely horrible, but but my point is, is that they're not just terrorizing Gaza. They're trying to destroy those military groups, those military organizations, those military weapons, the physical objects, the physical material that are being used to attack Israel. This is not some political question for Israel. This is not some talk of being the world's policeman. It's simply a matter of self-protection and self-preservation. There's no ambiguity at all for them.
0: Right, which... When you think about this, at least from the perspective of Israel, this situation is really simple. It's really simple. This is next generation people, right? These people really truly did have no say in the fact that they live in Israel. Mm-hmm. They had no say. In it. This is where they were born. This is what they've experienced over the course of their life. And this is what they must do to continue to survive. When someone tries to kill people in Israel, they have to stop them. They have to do something about it. They have to try and prevent them. They have to, if they can, as you said, destroy the equipment and things. Now, you can do that in a more or less ruthless manner without attempting more or less to mitigate civilian casualties. Israel, I think, on that note, does what it can, and it does quite a bit. They do things like drop knock bombs on buildings, which cause the building to shake, to warn people to leave. Now, if you really want to kill, if there's there's somebody in there who is doing something to you and you want to kill that person, you have just decided that it's not worth killing the civilians there too. Mm -hmm. That's a call that in many cases, the United States does not make.
1: I was about to say, I mean, the United States in recent years on a regular basis has bombed suspected terrorist locations and in doing so has killed civilians in the process. That's a Relatively normal occurrence. Not normal, but when you know it does happen.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, there are there are dictators and things who who wouldn't even wonder about that, right? (laughs) Who are not even not even concerned with this question at all. I point that out only because it's worth noting that they could be far more ruthless in how they how they go about this, and it would work better in Mm -hmm. terms of killing the people that they're going after. Now, in the long run, it might work more poorly for achieving some kind of peace. I think collateral damage does a massive amount of, creates a massive amount of problems in the future mm-hmm. that lead to more and more conflict. And so I think that there is wisdom in, even from a practical perspective, where the, again, the morals and the the practical aspects align, you actually are would rightfully try to mitigate as much harm as possible to innocent people in these conflicts. But as Brad was saying, that's there is a limit to what you can do, and human error will happen. There will be bombs dropped on places accidentally. There will be times where the no-knock bomb – where, where the no-knock – I'm mixing this up with no-knock raids. <laughs> <laughs> the only time we ever talk about knocking in this podcast is to mention no-knock raids. There's, <laughs> that's what we should call normal bombs from here on there are
1: out. They're no-knock bombs.
0: They're no-knock bombs. <laughs> All this is to say that Israel can't simply do nothing either, right? They can't you can't let someone launch rockets at you which do kill people and be like, "Meh, wasn't that many people."
1: Yeah, I mean in terms of options, you know, you, if you're Israel, what are your options? You can you can ignore it. You can ignore the the rocket launches, you know, we're talking, you know, thousands of rockets in the past week, you know, even the first few volleys were in the hundreds. You've got a country that's actively attacking your people. And to sit by and do nothing, how is that a just thing for a government to do, to to let its people be killed within their own borders, knowing who's doing it and not do anything about it? But then they say, okay, well, let's do it, but do it more humanely. Well, what does that look like? Well, if, if bombing is a problem, then one solution is Israel invades Gaza and occupies it again. You know, they say yes. we've got Hamas. Hamas is not... Hamas is the government of Gaza, but they are not in open government they're like they're not like hey our headquarters are here we've got a base you know look located 20 miles that way yeah. <laughs> like the united states they can't just target hamas's military bases because hamas operates like many of the military organizations in in the middle east do which is they operate underground and undercover which means that you can't just bomb military targets and not risk casualties as dan was saying so so what so what does that mean? We we invade, you know, Israel invades Gaza and occupies it. Now, in order to do that, there's going to be a lot more casualties, both military and civilian, in Gaza. And, you know, instead of it being, you know, hundreds to thousands, it'll be in the tens of thousands, potentially. And then they have to stay there. And they have to stay there and occupy the country because Hamas is still underground. <laughs> you know, Hamas is not gone once you've right. invaded.
0: Right, and does their for and what does their foreign occupation convince the people of? Well, makes Israel look more and makes, more like tyrants. Makes Israel look worse. Probably yeah, increases exactly. the resistance. Right, it may it may escalate things and create more people who are going to try and harm them. There's no pretty solution there's, there's to this. No,
1: there's no pretty solution. You know, you look at you look at the United States. What has the United States done in the past? World War One. The Lusitania is sunk in what was it? 191917. But in World War One, you know, the Lusitania is sunk, we declare war, and we send thousands upon thousands of troops to to kill and die because one ship was sunk. World War II, Pearl Harbor is attacked and people lose their lives, but the mainland of the United States was never even attacked. We launched a full-scale invasion that ended with us dropping two nuclear bombs on innocent civilians. And those were not military targets, those were innocent civilians but we justified it in defense of America. And that's something right. most people will will agree with. Most people don't say America should not have done anything in World War II, or they should have negotiated with Japan after Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. And obviously these are larger instances, but not in terms of scale, not in terms of what's happened to Israel, that in many ways Gaza attacking Israel is not that different from Japan bombing Pearl Harbor. But the point is, is that every time the United States has been threatened, even a little bit, everyone has agreed that the United States was right to defend itself. But when Israel does it, it it becomes a a little more blurry, and that's because we're not thinking about it in terms of what they're going through. Now, that being said, it doesn't mean that we believe that what Israel is doing is right. Just like... I'm not saying that the United States dropping two atomic bombs on Japan was right. I don't think that was right. I, <laughs> I don't think, think that so was either. an unethical and unnecessary thing to do. We were also firebombing them and killing yes and, killing and, many yeah, that and way. firebombing was designed to kill civilians and may have ended up killing I I believe it ended up killing much yeah, more, more than. people than were killed by the two nuclear bombs, much more civilian Japanese people. I bring this up to help illustrate the mindset that Israel is in and why they're doing what they're doing because I don't think the solution is to villainize Israel. I think the solution is to help Israel realize that there is that there's things they can do without losing without losing their sovereignty with without giving up their their right to defend themselves because because honestly when I look at the israel Gaza crisis, my concern is not that Israel is attacking Gaza. I understand why Israel's attacking Gaza and I really think that that logistically it's the only thing they can do is something like what they're doing. My concern with Israel and Gaza is what Israel's done the last 20 years. Israel in many ways has created what's happening now because of the way that they've treated Gaza. And at some point, they have to make a change, and that change is going to be very difficult because of the threat that Gaza poses to Israel. But the problem is is that it's one of those twisted circles, you know what I mean, where Gaza poses a threat, and so Israel clamps down on Gaza. And so because of that, Gaza lashes out at Israel. Rightly so, many people would argue, I don't, I don't condone terrorism, but I do condone the frustration, the anger that, that right. they're experiencing. I don't think blindly launching rockets is a solution, but things like protesting, unrest. I get that. I totally get that.
0: Right, right, right. We haven't jumped into the mindset of the people in Gaza, but absolutely, are they are they justified in in wanting to be to have those trade things removed? Yes, are they? Do they wanting more independence? Yeah,
1: wanting yes. to actually be be treated like even just some semblance of a nation to have some human dignity, some freedom. I mean, it's it's a no brainer. I mean, really, it's so clear why Gaza is doing what they're doing. People yes. label Hamas as a terrorist organization, and technically, I mean, yeah, it is terrorism when you're launching rockets at civilians. That's terrorism, and that's obviously unethical. Obviously unethical but the motivations behind it make perfect sense.
0: <laughs> right. Uh, this is one of the things with, related to terrorism. People look at it, especially at Middle Easterners, it, with their often religious, mingling their religious beliefs with, their, with the way that they attack people like, Isra- like the Israelis, and even uh, things like with 9-11. But here's, here's one of the things to remember when you hear that. The average person just does not want to go die for some cause. They can, believe, they can believe the most radical things most people are not willing to die for them. Unless you have something visible and pressing, something that actually affects your life. When you look into the people who did 9-11, almost all of them have some personal experience. And they have visible symbols of America doing bad things to their people. And without that, you don't get people willing to die for it very often. There are few, there are few people who can become true religious zealots, who can believe something abstract, have no evidence for it, and be willing to die for it. Right, but those people are extremely rare. Hamas is recruiting. Whatever, whatever their, I, I imagine their actual creeds and things are probably pretty terrible, probably pretty, uh, pretty crazy in many ways, and I would probably disagree with all of them. But ultimately, their recruiting. Is not driven by those ideas. It's not driven by religious zealots, zealotry. It's driven by the fact that they can look at Israel, they can look at the prosperity of the people around them, they look at the ways in which their freedom is restricted, and they say, "Yeah, it makes sense. This this stuff is bad. Therefore, maybe I can get on board with some of this other things." Right? It's it's the practical. It's the way that it affects them on a day to day basis. drives people in most cases to extreme acts.
1: And what Israel is doing is the same thing that United States has done in the Middle East for so long, which is committing those acts that live in people's memories, doing those things that are only going to encourage them to lash out at Israel. I mean, a specific example, just right now, just from this, from, from this conflict you had uh, protesters in the West Bank, you know, and the protests turned violent. I don't have a lot of details on it because this is kind of, this is all happening right now, and there's a lot of uh, wartime coverage, but these protesters end up getting shot by Israeli soldiers. They tried to use tear gas, they tried to use rubber bullets, and they weren't effective, and so they switched to live ammunition, killing and wounding many protesters. And I I understand why Israel is where they're at, because these Israeli soldiers, you know, are in their minds defending their country. You know what I mean? In their minds, their country is at war. And so these protesters are really walking that line between being protesters and being involved in an armed conflict, especially when those protests turn into riots and turn violent. But that doesn't change at the end of the day that those soldiers are killing unarmed or less than fully armed civilians which is a serious serious problem and something that is going to have serious ramifications for israel far beyond the chaos of that one day where they decided to do that you know what i mean it's right. it's the right. kind of thing that can that that starts wars on a regular basis and it's the kind of thing that israel is doing on a regular basis because they're caught up in the moment Instead of thinking about the long term,
0: right, you can imagine being both the guy on the ground there who makes that call and feels justified. Like like you if you were there and you saw this and what we had to do and what we were defending and the nece- that this looks necessary, and yet at the same time, if you were in the head of if you were the person above this person who hears about it, being like, this would have never been okay. Do you realize what this looks like? Do you realize that no matter what the circumstances on the ground may have been, we are now the, vil- the villains.
1: More than anything else, even just in alienating the Palestinians who are there, if Israel's not careful, they're going to alienate the United States. And that is that is one group that that, to this day, Israel relies on for financial aid. The United States has always supported Israel, not just ideologically, but financially, but militarily. We have backed Israel, and that has been part of why Israel has been able to survive. That's part of why Israel has been able to build the military that they have today to get the superior training, the superior weapons, and those make a difference and have allowed Israel to reach the place where they can have a conflict with Gaza and only have a handful of casualties. Right. But every time they do something like shoot down a group of protesters— Anytime they do things like stop humanitarian aid from going to a place like Gaza that desperately needs it, all they do is turn worldwide opinion against them, and the world is getting smaller every day, and having world opinion on your side really does make a difference, and will in many ways be more important than the individual conflicts.
0: Right, whatever could have developed if they didn't disperse this crowd. Mm-hmm. I do not envy the position of either group, because both of them in within their context are there. There is injustice on both sides that justifies many of the responses, not the particular responses per se, but as you were saying, the the anger and and the desire to change things, and the necessity even of changing things, perhaps through violence. But all of that is so mixed up with a complicated history and with the fact that there doesn't appear to be a good practical solution. Israel is to at least some degree right. that If they simply allow complete free trade here, if they allow freedom in the Gaza Strip, it could turn into a tactical nightmare for them. It could be it's located in such a position that it might spell their doom. Now, maybe not. I don't know. Perhaps with the development of the Iron Dome and how clearly effective it is, perhaps that's not the case. I don't know enough about the, you know, the strategic layout of the area and what their calculations should be in regard to that. Things have certainly changed since they took the stance that they are taking with Gaza. And since they've imposed these blockades, they have become more capable in, of defending different things. But, but even the fact that they can defend them does not mean they should stand by and just shoot, be content to shoot rockets out of the air that's not acceptable. You know, it's not an acceptable solution to just allow people to do that and to try and kill your people. Ideally, what I would love to see is an independent Gaza that refuses to allow anybody doing that kind of thing, right? That would be the best of both worlds. A, a, mm-hmm. a Gaza that would, instead of cheering in some cases, obviously, this is going to vary from people. Some, I've heard reports of people in Gaza who are upset at the people launching rockets, and reports from people on people in Gaza who were cheering on the launching rockets. Mm-hmm. But as long as they're going to allow rockets, they're also inviting the wrath of Israel. You don't want both of those things. <laughs> you don't want either of those things. Uh, and at some point, they have to, it's possible that the people in Gaza could solve this by being so morally heroic that they can endure the oppression from Israel while also cleansing their own population and not retaliating. But that's, you don't count on that.
1: <laughs> what I would say, Dan, is that I think that the person who should take the first step, the person who should, who should meet in the middle is Israel, because Israel is the one with the opportunity to do so. Because Israel is right. the one with the Iron Dome. Israel can not lower their defenses— but can make an overture of peace because they have the military firepower to correct something that happens because of it. You know what I mean? Israel is the one who can say, hey, we're going to significantly ease the restrictions on trade with Gaza. We're going to back off as much as possible. We're even going to send in a lot of our own aid. We're going to be chipping in humanitarian aid of different kinds. We would love to trade with Gaza, and we're going to make this overture of peace, because that's what Hamas says they want. They should make the overture and say, hey, these Palestinian families in Jerusalem, we're not going to kick them out. Instead, we're going to reach an agreement, because we understand that Palestine has a vested interest in Jerusalem, just like the Israelis do, and that's okay, and we're going to work with the Palestinians as much as possible to find some kind of an accord. And then, once they do that, they've gained, in many ways, the moral upper hand. Because then, if Gaza continues to bombard Israel with rockets, they can turn to the world and say, hey, we've gone above and beyond to try and reach out to Gaza. And clearly, Clearly, this is this is not Gaza. This is a terrorist group within Gaza that Gaza cannot deal with itself. And for all we know, Gaza might even be okay with Israel coming in and, and wiping them out. You know what I mean? Because at that point,
0: if they were working with them, right? Yeah, right.
1: because you would have the 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 public opinion even within Gaza could turn. You know what I mean? Against, and they would need that yeah. against Hamas and towards Israel. But right now, like Dan was saying, a great number of people in Gaza consider israel the ones to be the oppressors not hamas because in many ways israel is and until right. they gain that moral that moral high ground it's always going to be it's always going to be messy and it's just Never going to be over. That's the biggest problem here for Israel. Because I know Israel would say, Oh, well, we don't need world opinion. We stand alone.
0: Because in so many cases they do.
1: As in so many cases they do. And I and I agree with that. But the fact is, is with Gaza, this has been going on for 20 years. Do you want to continue to live in a world where rockets are constantly raining down on Israel? I think if they could convince their people to take that heroic first step, we could really see something something change. But I think Israel is the one that has to take the first step.
0: In terms of uh, things of in the how practical this could practically sense, develop, yeah. yes, I agree. I'm not saying they have
1: you. the moral obligation to take the first step. I'm saying they're the only ones who ever could take the first step. is not in a position to take the first step because Gaza isn't, isn't whole. You know what I mean? Gaza isn't a... a an acting body in so many ways.
0: You could get something, uh, you know, akin to a Gandhi is what I was suggesting in Gaza. You know, someone, a kind of movement at a moral level with a leadership that would be absolutely extraordinary. That could happen, but it's just so unlikely. You never plan on those kind of things.
1: Here's the reason that I think it would be so hard, Dan, for that to happen is simply because the military resources that are in Gaza are not controlled. You know what I mean? And so even if you control 80% of the population, even if you get public goodwill on your side, that's not going to stop the rockets from being launched into Israel versus Israel has a stable government. And so if Israel as a people decides to do something different, they can act as one.
0: Yes. And yes, I absolutely concur with you that it is not only more likely, it is more practical for Israel to make the first step. I do want to mention it, though, just because I, it, it is possible, as unlikely as it is, because – and we know it's possible because we've seen it happen – where cases like Britain controlling India, you can have the people being oppressed, who have every reason to hate their oppressors, who have mm-hmm. every reason to resist them, and who have radical members on their own side who do want to fight back, can take control of the situation. You don't assume that this is going to happen because that takes – somebody as extraordinary as Gandhi that takes a group of people as committed as those marching with Martin Luther King to nonviolence you know who can who would throw themselves in front of those rocket launchers and say don't do this mm-hmm. from the practical perspective israel does need to make the first step and they could and as you said i think they're in a position to do so now in ways that, that it would have been impractical before but you can see why they wouldn't want to giving up that kind of control they feel right now like they have some semblance of control. Obviously, it's not extremely effective, given the last week. But it's something. And to say to, to react to this and say what we need is less control is going to be a tough sell. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a tough sell to say what we need is to give. It looks like you're capitulating. And that's not a good look either. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a terrible position for a leader to be in. Israel will turn on a leader, is likely to turn on a leader. Who does that? Because it'll look like capitulation. It'll look like well, you're a coward, and you're going to just start trying to appease people who are trying to kill us, and not just kill us, but kill civilians, launch rockets mm-hmm. into crowds.
1: Mm-hmm. I get it, Dan. That's a, that's an excellent point. Is that in many ways that is part of Israel's problem? Is that Israel has a lot of pride, and they've earned that pride as a nation. They've they've earned it over these last, you know, these last seventy, eighty years. In, in what they've had to accomplish in many ways on their own. But I think that as a country, they need to take a step forward in their evolution, in their mentality, yes. in order to be more effective in the 21st century. Because otherwise, it's just going to be an, an, a never-ending cycle of violence. Because what they're doing right now is only going to result in that. You know, the right. only the only possible outcome here is more fighting because even if even if Israel came in and said, you know what, we're just going to wipe Gaza off the face of the earth, you know what I mean, because it's the only way to stop mm-hmm. it, the natural result would be those, those neighboring countries would feel like they had no choice but to step in. Maybe even Western countries would step in. Maybe the United States would step in and say, no, you can't do that, and we are going to actively stop you. I don't know. The point is, is that it's always going to end in violence unless... Something different is done, and the only thing that can be done different is a complete overhaul of their approach.
0: Of their approach, yes. Yeah, you're right. There is wisdom in that.
1: And I think what it's going to take is it's going to take a leader, a leader of Israel, who has proven themselves as someone who's willing to do what it takes, because because the approach I'm talking about is not a nonviolent one. You know, yes. I'm I'm talking about about still using violence to protect when necessary. It would be interesting if if you had a, Israel's response to this attack would be to brutally retaliate against the attacks, to maybe even to invade Gaza, to shut down these attacks, because they haven't been able to stop them yet, you know, to do whatever it takes to stop the attack. And then afterwards, reevaluate their relationship with gaza and mm-hmm. and maybe that would be a solution is to say this is not about not having strength it is about having strength to do what needs to be done, and that means stopping the attacks, yes, but it also means stopping the things that we are doing that are not right
0: yes, and as you said it ultimately will require them to work with the people in Gaza in a way that they're just not right now and and that will that will require probably a shift in public opinion in both places <laughs> a shift in certainly a shift in leadership it was interesting the way that israel responded recently to these among the other things they did they they faked an invasion and then bombed the places that that they expected the people from hamas firing the rockets to retreat to which is certain underground tunnels and things and subways basically a subway system that goes under gaza whether or not that's been effective in terms of ending the the threat and how what, what kind of collateral damage and so on remains to be seen yeah a lot of people talk about the idea that you could solve this problem at its root which is which is address the full historical context of the conflict i think that's a pipe dream
1: there's real world issues to that because you look at anywhere in the world and many different peoples usually have lived there the borders of european countries right now are not set in stone they varied they fluctuated parts of france used to be controlled by so-and-so and and controlled by so-and-so you know i mean it goes back and back and back historical rights are not the same as human rights if someone came to me and the home that I'm living in today, and said, "800 years ago, my ancestors owned this home and were kicked out of it," does that work? On some level, they have grounds, right? That at some level, they did have a stake in that in that land. But but how do you settle that? How do you settle? What if? A hundred years after their ancestors were kicked out, someone else's ancestors were kicked out. Many people have been kicked out of this home. Who does it actually belong to? Is it the person who was here first? Is it the person who has the strongest claim? You know, how do you how do you figure that out? I mean, look at the United States today. The United States today was colonized. The majority of, of the people here in the United States have European ancestry. And the Native Americans who were here first lost the vast majority of the land, and in many cases, in unethical ways. Not always, but there were many times when the United States government forced Native Americans out of their land. Obviously, that was unethical. Obviously, that was morally wrong. But should we take the city of New York and try and trace back which Native Americans' ancestors, you know, which Native Americans who are alive today, their ancestors, who may have at one point lived on the island that is Manhattan and give them that city? Is that morally right to do using the resources of all the people who live in that city now? Should we chase down the descendants of the soldiers who, working for the U.S. government, slaughtered Native Americans and arrest them? Right, right. And demand reparations from them? At what point does it become about what we're doing Instead of it being about what our ancestors have done.
0: Right. Is it just to to punish children for the sins of their fathers?
1: Because the Middle East is is far worse than the Native Americans in the United States because the claims are overlapping and go back and forth and back and forth for a very long time. We're talking thousands of years, as Dan said earlier. And so even if you could come up with a mathematical formula of this is how you establish who has the ancestral right to an area, it just would be an absolute historical nightmare to sort it all (laughs) out. And an ethical nightmare because that's what's happening right now. What's happening right now is Israel is saying, hey, these 12 Palestinian families or whatever in East Jerusalem, these homes actually... Belong to Israelis and you forced them out, or you didn't force them out, but your ancestors did, and mm-hmm. so we're gonna need those back. They're doing the same thing to Palestinians that some say the Palestinians should do to the Israelis. You know, it's not one-sided here. It's it's a mess. It
0: it is difficult. I think I think it's a general rule after a couple of generations to try and resolve it as if you were dealing with the party that committed the crime and the party against whom the crime was committed is a mistake. And it be, ends up being a travesty of justice where you're, you're punishing people who have done no wrong to help people against whom no crime has been committed. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you're looking at stuff as if it is the moral question rather than looking at people and what they've done. I think that's a terrible mistake and, a, and an injustice in itself. And the good news is that, that people feel that way. Now, you'll have people in Israel and in, in the Gaza Strip who no doubt look back at these ancient things, and it's very important to them. But much more important to them is the actual effect of what's happening because of Israel imposing that blockade.
1: And the other thing, Dan, is that usually when we go back and we go start tracing lines back and have this complicated fight over land, we're, we're totally missing the point. Really, when it comes down to Israel and Palestine, there's, there's fight over who was here first But there's also, I mean, especially when you look at some of these other countries that are nearby, a lot of it has to do with religion and holy sites, and that should be acknowledged and that should be addressed. You can come up with a solution that's less about who gets what land and more about how can we ensure that all of these people are able to visit the holy sites that have so much importance to them. And that's something that could actually reasonably be done, that you can do things with Jerusalem, to make it accessible so that people can pilgrimage there to be able to visit their holy sites. Just like in the United States today, the solution is not necessarily to say, hey, Native Americans, we're going to give you back Manhattan. The the solution would be to say, hey, we forced you out of these lands. We set up these reservations in, in Arizona and took you away from what was your home, which was these other places that had these certain economic resources, these different lands, and say, hey, wait a second, we've got huge chunks of federally owned land. Why not allow Native Americans the right to live as a hunter-gatherer society if that's what they want on those lands? You know what I mean?
0: As we noted last episode, there's plenty of acres.
1: There's plenty of acres where you can't do things like build a campfire, where you can't do things like hunt Where you can't do things like cut down a tree because you're breaking federal law. What if they came in and and made exemptions for Native Americans? you know what I mean? I'm not saying that's the ultimate solution. I'm just giving an example of how you can think outside the box when it comes to these long-term historic problems to allow people, not necessarily the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law to, to restore damage that's been done.
0: Yeah, and when it comes at the cost of, of no one, as that one would.
1: Yeah, or in the case of the holy sites, when it comes at a at a much more reasonable cost, instead of forcing hundreds of thousands of people to to leave their homes and their nations, it becomes much more reasonable.
0: Right, you can negotiate something. And-
1: but it requires that people compromise. People have to give up things in order to get other things. And the problem with the Middle East, the problem with Israel and Palestine in particular, is that People are not willing to give things up. People have demonized the other side for so long that it's become seemingly impossible. It's the same thing that we see with Democrats and Republicans here in the United States, just with less rockets.
0: (laughs) Thankfully, many less rockets. Not, not, not a few less, not a slight decrease.
1: And I bring that up because so many times the, the solutions that we're proposing are universal. And and the one that we're talking about here is that sometimes you have to take the first step and you have to stop demonizing the enemy and actually understand where they're coming from and actually be willing to, to take a risk and put yourself out there. And sometimes that means risking life and limb. Like what we're talking about with Israel... Could cost them lives, and that's a very real risk that they have to weigh. But they have to also understand that they're losing lives now; they're losing currently. If they weren't losing, then they wouldn't be open to anything. But they, right. there is already a cost.
0: Right. Any solution that that tries to address the long term cost may come at the cost of more in the near future. Right. A, a higher short term cost mm-hmm. that can be that can be worth it if it if it actually can solve the problem. And with that, thank you for listening. This has been episode 42 of the Rethinking Politics podcast. You can visit our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com. You can email us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook and on Twitter. You can find a link to support us on Patreon on our website. Thanks for listening.